Hello and welcome to another episode of Right Care at Baptist. I'm your host, Jake Lancaster, internal medicine physician and chief medical information officer. And I'm Amanda Comer, system director for advanced practice providers. And today we are glad to have Dr. Steve Threckle to talk to us about some updates related to COVID-19. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Jake. I appreciate it. And Amanda, good to be with you guys. Can you tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself and your and your background? Sure. I'm I'm a uh, native Memphian, and uh, I think my grandfather and dad practiced medicine in town. I work with my brother, and my uncle was a pediatrician, so I really had no choice to become anything else, I guess. But uh, so I work with my brother in infectious disease, and I've been back here at Baptist since 1997. Although I did start in patient transport in 1983, making me one of the longest tenured people around here. I think uh, having having done most of the jobs, I think so. Wow. Uh, it's great to be back and and a part of the team here. And you finished residency at UAB, or, or was it med school? Uh, no, I, I I went both med school and residency at UAB, so we 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 have that in common. So yeah. uh, great great place. I love Birmingham. Yeah, great great training for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know you've uh, been doing a lot of of news media coverage of the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, especially in the the Memphis metro area, and I appreciate your time so that we can get some some questions answered about uh, what's going on now with the with the pandemic. Um, you know, right now we're seeing cases on the rise again, primarily due to the, the Delta variant, we think. Um, but what can you tell us about kind of the, the state of the pandemic in, in our region? Yeah, in our region, it's particularly unfortunate because, you know, we really are. We've roughly tripled our hospitalization. Seems like a little more than that in the ICU. And we're seeing a lot of very young people who are in the ICU and sick. In part, it's been just driven from the elderly population into the young because the elderly had been largely protected with the vaccine. So I just left an ICU with uh, two people in their 20s, someone in their 30s and 40s. And so we're really seeing that as a uh, as a big problem and, and really uh, those are the people left who are uh, at risk of getting the infection. We're hearing more about the Delta variant. Let's talk about that compared to other variants that we've seen. Is it more deadly or more contagious or is it more concerned? Well, you know, I, I look at Delta as just the latest uh, unfortunate little run down a, down a pathway or a road that we don't want to be on. Uh, they're, they're, with every passing variant that seems to replace the other one, we're getting a little more formidable opponent. You know, if you look at the variants that are out there, Delta is probably the most contagious. That That's why it's taken over the world. The fastest horse wins. Uh, and this is just choking out other ones by virtue of getting to someone else and spreading more efficiently and faster and so forth. So it's really behind really large increases in cases um, really all over the world. We saw it first in England and other places, of course. Uh, the UK variant sort of was the one before it, now called the Alpha variant, and it was more contagious, so it took over things. And so now the Delta variant in India and other places has really replaced it as the next fastest situation. So it unfortunately takes those people who are not protected. And, and another key point is the vaccine still is very effective against uh, against this, um, but it it really is replacing those other viruses and running up the numbers in people who have not yet protected themselves with vaccinations. Uh, it's a little more resistant probably against uh, against the immunity that we get from past infection with other variants. And it is indeed a little more resistant even to the vaccine associated immunity. But what's happening is that the uh, the populations who are unprotected and unvaccinated are being hunted down more efficiently than they were before. So the odds of you're escaping 
both vaccination and infection, it just becomes two rocks that are pretty narrow to swim through uh, now. And so we're just seeing so many folks who've not bothered to get infection because things were better. Now we've been replaced or we have we have seen the uh, the virus replaced with a more formidable opponent. It, it, it's farther than it needs to jump because some people are protected and more people are vaccinated. Not enough, but some. But now we have a virus that can, in fact, jump farther and uh, and, and to get to us more easily. Yeah, so probably, I forgot uh, one thing about the about the uh, the deadly part of it. We don't have terrific, uh, really firm data about that. Some early data out of Scotland suggested that uh, the hospitalizations were doubled at, at a rate, and, and but those were relatively small numbers. We thought that actually early on in the alpha variant as well. So it really hasn't totally borne out yet. And I think a little more data needs to come down the pike before we know exactly how virulent it is. Yeah, it was interesting you, you saying that you're seeing a lot more patients in the ICU and, and whether or not that's that's telling for, I guess it's virulence. But, you know, right now, I think in the metro area, I was pulling some numbers earlier, about 30% of our ICU patients are COVID patients. And that's uh, at the height of it in December and January, we were around 52% um, in the ICU. And so the rate of rise, because we went down, we were at about 5% of patients in late June, and it's really over the last three weeks, just, you know, really skyrocketed. But that's, really, that's, that's an interesting and kind of disturbing figure. I hadn't heard that because, I mean, you're looking at, we had 170, 175 people in the hospital at the worst yeah. of this. So, so for us to be pushing anywhere near ICU levels uh, with 35 people in the hospital is kind of disturbing. That really is. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that, uh, you know, this is the, you know, if we're talking about video games, you know, after you get to every level, you fight a new boss. And uh, is this this is the the hardest one we fought so far? Is this the final boss, the Delta variant, or do you think there's there's more coming down the the pipe? You know, I, I wish, but unfortunately, um, we have to realize too that that we in the U.S. as as incompletely vaccinated as we are, there are many countries who haven't seen vaccine one. Uh, and so I'm afraid that because of that, we're going to be treated to a steady diet of, of variants. Uh, we don't know what all the virus can do. We don't, I mean, a lot of, a lot of mutations and variants are not going to be effective. They're not going to be able to outcompete Delta. But, you know, there's some other ones out there. The first variant that really made me nervous was sort of the Gamma Brazilian variant. And that was the one that has no respect for past immunity. And you know, the people in Manaus, Brazil were just rampaged early on in, in the pandemic by the virus to, to the degree that they were held out as a possible study site for herd immunity. And then a few months later, here comes a variant now known as the gamma variant, Brazilian variant, that just rampaged right through again as if nothing had happened the first time. I, that was the first time I thought, oh, hold on, this this could go on all day. Um, and uh, it really, and, and that, that variant is still out there. It's got a couple of little footholds in Washington state. There have even been a couple of cases in the Mid-South. So we do worry about those sorts of things, but it's all population genetics. I mean, the, the, the faster, more efficient, uh, more contagious virus is winning right now, but that doesn't mean that as our immunity gets better, that that might shift over to the winning virus being ones that is ones that are more able to resist our immunity. Um, and it may be more important than the speed at which it, at which it transmits after that. So we worry about that stuff. And we certainly have taken a step down the wrong pathway on that. I mean, I've seen a bunch of people have breakthrough cases. Um, and now they tend by and large to be not very sick, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, which they're interesting all by themselves, but those exceptions, but uh, most people do very well if they get reinfected, but they certainly are getting reinfected at numbers that we've not seen even collectively this much in the past. So I think that's the fear that what we see 
is we'll get viruses that might make our vaccines less and less relevant to protect us. And then you've got to go make some more vaccines. And that, of course, takes a little time to accomplish. So has the management of COVID changed given the emergence of new variants? Um, you know, I would say it has not really changed appreciably in terms of what we do for hospitalized patients. We have, you know, I would say that we're a lot more confident in what we do. It's important to remember that the first few months of this, we, we I mean, we were extrapolating from other diseases, other processes. We were using general sepsis thought and techniques to decide what to do. And there came that time when people said, you know, ventilators are bad for people. You should avoid the ventilator. Well, you should always avoid the ventilator, but it wasn't doing anything, uh, you know, of uh, added problem other than just they're sick enough to need a ventilator. But things like that, we just didn't know. So there are a lot more data under our belts now to be able to know what to do for an individual patient who is sick. Um, but I think the younger patient population is the most striking thing to look at. Uh, when you see the patient. The other thing is that um, is that morbid obesity has become, I think, a tremendously important risk factor. Um, I've lost 15 pounds uh, since I started taking care of, of COVID patients and uh, not just for that reason, but but uh, it, it is uh, it's very sad. You'll see very young people, but almost across all boundaries. Otherwise, uh, the people who are in the on the ventilators in the ICU are very much overweight. And so it's something that we have to, I think, stress as an important kind of health issue here because uh, because, you know, as the older people who are uh, vaccinated and protected aren't landing in the ICU, we're actually seeing it more clearly now because you don't get to be old a lot of times uh, if you're morbidly obese. I mean, you end up dying of other comorbidities earlier. So it makes it, I think, into a little bit more sharp focus than it, than it had been in the first part of the, uh, of the pandemic. And, and speaking of that, um, so one of the, the treatments we've been using is the monoclonal antibodies. And... You know, early on, it was really restrictive of the criteria you could on who you could give it to. But I believe they updated the criteria to include uh, BMI as a risk factor. Do you want to comment on that, or are you seeing it used more in younger patients? Yeah, that's an excellent point because um, they did it. They did relax those things. I think we've always thought that they were very successful. I mean, anecdotally, lessons, but then studies came out and showed that it really did do a nice job of preventing people from kind of going over the falls into, you know, very serious infection. And part of the confusion was that people say, well, I feel okay, I don't need one. But how well you feel in the beginning uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a lower likelihood of, of having one of those big uh, problems from a respiratory standpoint a bit later on, a week, 10 days into the infection. So it's not easy to predict based on that. Um, so, yeah, I think we've underutilized. Uh, we actually at Baptist have been way ahead of most people in the country at doing that. We've given thousands while a lot of large academic centers on the East Coast were giving you know, in the tens and hundreds. Um, I think we just had a more nimble way of accomplishing it, of getting the, getting the drug into people because it's logistically difficult to accomplish. It's outpatient drug. You have to be a safe area with negative pressure rooms so that you don't cause any danger to other patients, that sort of thing. So we really have given a lot, but I think nationally we've given way too little of the, of the antibody and we are seeing younger and otherwise uh, healthier people uh, getting the monoclonal antibody, but there's a limited how many times you you, know, you can do a day. I mean, it, it takes an yeah. hour for the infusion, an hour to monitor them afterward. But I think that's a very important thing. We probably need to be doing it collectively and nationally more than we have because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly good therapy. And yes, indeed, a lot of people are saying, "Well, I'm not old enough, but I'm you know, I have all these other risk factors." And it is, in fact, easier to qualify now. You still can't do it if you're sick enough to be in the hospital. Unless, right. interestingly, you're admitted for something else, and that's the core. There you get into sort of, you know, bureaucracy. You, you can't give it if you're admitted for COVID and only a little sick, but you can give it if you're admitted for a fractured leg and, oh, by the way, you happen to be COVID positive. Then you can actually give it, and the FDA is okay with that.
And, and I think we've given it if they're OBS as well, because technically they're not, you know, in, they're not admitted. So. Exactly. Or, or even yeah. ER patients. If people come to the yeah. emergency department and they're not sick enough to be admitted, but they clearly have it and they're clearly at risk, we've given a lot of doses that way as well. And the BMI cutoff is like 25 now, I think? It, it is. I, I can't even remember the number. It's yeah. certainly gone such that I think like 88% of the United States yeah. qualifies. I mean, it's hard to get a BMI of 25. I, I'm telling you, um, it's uh, it, it is awfully easy to qualify for that uh, for that, and and I think, and, and I wouldn't say I think you have to be a little higher on the scale than that to really be at the okay. highest risk of severe disease. But no, it, it is it is quite easy to qualify for the monoclonal antibody. Now, now the other thing about that that's an interesting offshoot is what do you do for people who've been vaccinated? Do they qualify or should they get the monoclonal antibody? If you've got a bunch of antibody floating around, you probably don't necessarily need a lot of antibody given to you. Sure. So um, we have occasionally, uh, particularly with immunosuppressed people, we've occasionally checked antibody levels. And I say that almost with embarrassment because uh, except in the extremes of those antibody values that you get, we don't know what those numbers mean. And you can say it again and again that we, you know, you'll say, well, if it's greater than 250, then we'll say, and that's probably pretty good. And if it's undetectable, well, they probably need the protection. Anything in between there, um, the data just are no good. We, we don't know what those numbers mean and what they translate into clinical benefit. You know, some of those studies they're doing over in England, they're actually trying to they're actually trying to challenge people with the virus. There are ethical arguments about that study, the group of studies. But it will. Um, the, the good thing about them would be that they will tell us kind of what is a positive antibody really in terms of what level do you need to be protected, and and they may give us that answer. That's good to know. And and so apart from monoclonal antibodies. Um, you know, our other treatment modalities that we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, we've talked a lot about remdesivir. We've yeah, steroids, which will be the biggest steroids. one to come along. So. Yeah, and and the other anti-inflammatories, are, are we... Socialismab and some of those things, but they're really for the sicker people. I mean, remdesivir, of course, anybody that's, that's hospitalized on oxygen, but, you know, the tocilizumab is somebody who's moving to the ICU right, getting right. sicker. We've been sort of powerless in the outpatient venue. The monoclonal antibody was really the first thing to come out that we could do for people. Yeah. And that's why it's been sort of a, a, a powerful sort of thing. Um, but th that is where we kind of, um, I think, have learned a lot about when to utilize those things. And, and again, that was a long time coming. I mean, people, yeah. we still forget how, you know, how green we were about this and what to do about it. But I would say one thing, and this brings up a very important point I'm glad you brought up. Uh, I see patients again and again and again getting steroids uh, given to them as an outpatient. And it is very clear that steroids are not recommended to someone who does not yet require oxygen and need you know, hospitalization sort of situation. They could even be harmful. So I'm sort of forever telling people stop, stop the prednisone because that's not a good thing. It could allow the virus to achieve higher loads and therefore get into some of those more serious complications later by allowing that to happen. Okay, that's good to know. And then the the evidence for um, remdesivir and tocilizumab is that still is that still what we use to treat in patients, or is it? Um, there's been some studies I think that came out with some mixed reviews, but what, what's the current thought? Yeah, there have been. I mean, we, we're generally using remdesivir, barring improper you know liver or kidney function that would make it make it problematic and potential side effects and dosing issues. And people who are sick enough to be in the hospital and requiring oxygen steroids, of course, are the kind of no-brainer that got the best data from the recovery trial in England, which has been so much of a standard that what they've done has been fantastic. Uh, and that really cuts mortality. And the tocilizumab has been harder to, to, to figure out, it's difficult to study, but it does seem in somebody who's worsening rapidly, um, you know, we, we do give that to somebody who's moving to the ICU, deteriorating, and in that window, which is admittedly kind of a small window, it does seem to have some reasonably good effects. 
it is an immunocompromising agent. I mean, it does suppress the immune system. That's the whole point. It prevents the immune system from attacking our lungs efficiently. The problem is that even in 2021, you get one end of that stick, you get the other one too. It could make you more amenable to infections uh, that we don't want in addition. So we don't give those things uh, willy-nilly, particularly we're giving steroids also, you're really whacking the immune system. So you have to be a little bit careful about, about leading to other unwanted secondary infections. But yeah, the therapy is not changing uh, dramatically right now. There's, there's not some uh, glut of new medications coming out. That, that's been part of the problem. You, know, you hear about the ivermectin people, uh, that's been in the news a little bit lately. And, you know, they're, they're very soft, very poorly designed trials, small kind of stuff that do give a little bit of credence to ivermectin. But I mean, when you compare it to the things like the, the, the vaccine data, they're really weak. There are some better trials coming out. And if you get a good randomized controlled trial that gives you data about that, we're all ears, of course. But I think uh, there are a lot of things that, and, and of course we went through hydroxychloroquine, other kinds of therapies that just simply didn't stand the test of the scrutiny uh, when you really do a reasonable trial. Most of those benefits just seem to come out in the wash as being random uh, noise. So there are many individuals that have not yet been vaccinated. Do you have any strategies for overcoming this hesitancy? Um, you know, it's obviously, <laughs> it's very frustrating because, you know, we literally, I mean, I mean look at the, the world, okay, the world, the first, there are 4 million deaths as of a week or so ago. The first million, it took nine months. Then the second million deaths took three and a half months, then three months, and the fourth million took only two and a half months. So, you know, we're not going in the right direction. We, and we, unlike most of the world, have the solution literally in our hands and we can't seem to give it away for free with a car wash thrown in uh, on it. And it's very, very frustrating. Um, so I think there, there are things in our psychology that, that prevent us from wanting to be vaccinated. If we're feeling good, we don't want to do anything. Um, and so uh, that, that's the thing we have to overcome. You, you turn it around, it's just the opposite. Go to the doctor with a, with a fever and sick, a viral infection, and you're, by gosh, not going to let that poor guy out of there or, or lady out of there without getting an antibiotic, even though it's not the right thing to do. So our psychology really is maladaptive in these sorts of things. Um, but I think the two things that we can overcome are uh, the, the, the sort of just the logistics of giving a vaccination and actually just sort of the trust issues. So we're surrounded in 100 miles in every direction by rural counties. There are not a lot of physicians. There are not a lot of hospitals. Um, but we do have, obviously, plenty of urban uh, you know, real estate right here. And we have a lot of people in both the rural and the urban counties that are disadvantaged economically, socially, et cetera. And so there's trust issue there. I mean, people don't trust authority in the government because it hadn't always treated them well. And so I think the solution to both of those problems is to get the vaccines into physicians' offices. Because when you do that, you know, they're there in the office anyway, maybe you can say, come next door and we're going to give you a vaccine. They don't have to do anything else, go anywhere else. And the other one is that you're dealing with a person that may have taken care of you for 20 years and that you trust. I mean, good studies have suggested that your primary doctor, whom you've known for 20 years, is way more of a force for good for you than is Anthony Fauci or Rochelle Walensky even. Um, so I think that is the way that we overcome most of the gettable people to over to the cause. And there are going to be people who are just afraid. And it's very hard to do that. I always liken that to getting your three-year-old to jump off a diving board. That They know that people will make fun of them if they don't learn to do it. They know that dad's right there to catch them, yet they're still really afraid. And, and that's a very hard thing to overcome. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment with that. Um, you know, one of the things we've seen in our data is that it's really that 20 to 40 year old population that it remains unvaccinated. Actually, our 65 plus in all three of our states is 
is over 70%, which is great, you know? And so um, I think one of the things you talked about, the strategy of, of getting into the doctor's offices would definitely work. But, you know, some of those 20 year olds, I mean, they don't go to the doctor. I never went to the doctor when I was that old. Um, so I think we just have to make it extremely convenient um, <laughs> for them to get it uh, or else, um, you know, make it hard for them not to be vaccinated. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's a great point because the, the, the psychology is better with these 70, 80, 90 year olds. I mean, my mother had polio growing up and and uh, and I had a great aunt who died of diphtheria uh, when, when when they were a baby. So they, they know of vaccines as things that have increased life expectancy in the developed world. And our grandparents would turn over in their graves if we if we weren't taking advantage of vaccines to 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 fix life uh, going in the right direction because they experienced it and they, they have no interest in, in not reaching out and getting that sort of uh, protection yeah that's yeah. a great point um so i know we're running short on time but do you have any predictions of what this last wave of COVID 19 is going to look like you know all the predictions we've seen over the last year, all the graphs that I think that I've shared numerous times have been wrong uh, about when it's about what what are we going to hit? You know, is this going to be more akin to what we saw in December, or is this going to be similar to what we had in the last summer? Or where is this wave going to fall? Yeah, I guess if if uh, if we've learned nothing else from the pandemic, it, it should be humility, uh, even physicians, <laughs> um, and so. You know, I think the problem with the prediction is that is the the ultimate wild card really comes down to what kind of variants come down the pike, and what, what is the is there escape from our previous vaccine immunity and from previous infection immunity? So, barring something like that, which we certainly hope we don't see, um, I think that um, we're going to see obviously not as bad a problem as we saw in in the bigger wave because more people are protected. What's more, disproportionately, as you I think appropriately pointed out, the most frail potential people who who would have done the worst did the worst the first time are protected disproportionately. So we're left with people who are less likely to get very sick in the first place. Um, so I think it's gonna it's gonna smolder on and maybe replaced by another variant and, and the, the infection is gonna more uh, more effectively seek out people who are not protected with the vaccine. And, and I think it's gonna go on for a lot longer than we would like. And I'm afraid we're gonna have these kind of debates on whether we should wear masks and so forth uh, and how we should protect ourselves for, for a little while to come, honestly. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, any comments on need for booster shots? I know we get that question quite frequently. Yeah, I think that, well, frankly, I think the immunity in those of us who've been fully vaccinated who are immune, normal immune systems has been surprisingly good and long lasting. We really don't have any reason yet to say we must get a booster. Now, it's going to be entirely different to say whether or not we need a different vaccine for the variants. We, we may well need that. We may already need that. I'm seeing a lot of people who are reinfected, thankfully, just not severely. I mean, it is, you still want to get the vaccine. It scares me. People say, well, don't bother getting it because it's not going to work anyway. Oh, it works. It may even be three times or so less effective in some of the test tube studies. But if that translates into reality, that's still an 85% effective vaccine, which is a lot better than we ever hoped really to get in the first place. So, and the other thing I would say, I would say about people who've been vaccinated, uh, more important than needing a booster, I think that that if you were really around a big load of virus, that that can overcome even pretty good immunity, uh, even the immunity that should be okay. So we, the people that we've seen who've gotten really sick and hospitalized, who had been fully immunized with a normal immune system, seem to have been people at ground level, so ground zero of sort of a super spreader sort of situation. We've had a couple of people actually die who were fully vaccinated. But each time they were probably sitting right next to someone who infected a lot of people in a group, whether in the family or church or something like that around them. 
So it makes sense to me, I think, even as a vaccinated person with a normal immune system to wear your mask if you are stuck in an indoor situation with poor airflow, sardined in with people who might be unvaccinated and thus putting out more in the way of virus. And I think it's just like what we saw early on in New York where younger, healthier healthcare workers were dying at alarming rates. I think they were just getting a snoot full of virus uh, from people all day long without really good protective equipment. Unfortunately, we may be replicating that situation in the smaller sense by being more relaxed in our personal protective behavior in association with a more contagious virus to begin with now. Well, this is very helpful. Do you have any final comments or, or thoughts for the audience? You know, I, I think everybody that does this, uh, all of us in healthcare right now would say uh, the most three most important things you can do regarding this pandemic are to vaccinate, vaccinate, and vaccinate. And uh, that, that's the answer. Uh, we just hope that we can we can show people the data and get your information from people who know something about it. I mean, uh, we all of us have sort of compelling brothers-in-law who are willing to share their inside information. But, you know, I, I'll have those people show me videos of forks sticking to their arms and so forth. And I don't, I don't have the heart to tell them that forks aren't really, dinnerware is not magnetic. So you can take your fork and do an MRI and nothing will happen. So Try to get your information from people who really do know something about this. They can give you real information, not just the latest thing that comes down the pike on the on the internet. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And you know, I for one, I was I was hoping to turn into Magneto. I think that would have been great superpower. Very question. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank you everybody for listening to Right Care at Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem CME credit. Thank you. <laughs>